According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4. We're about halfway through the verse, uh, the chapter, 16 verses here in the chapter. And uh, we're talking about our own rest that it remains for us to enter into. There, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And so we need to understand what this is about. How do we connect to it? On what basis are we the people of God? Are we replacing Israel? Are we stealing their promises? What are we doing with rest? And why does the book of Hebrews place the emphasis that it does on rest? And then, of course, this is going to take us into the need for diligence. We must be diligent to enter that rest. And then the standard by which we live which is the, the, uh, the Word of God. It's alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so uh, we've got a lot of good things in front of us here in this chapter. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Let's call upon our Father to show His faithfulness yet again to lead us in, into the truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your truth. We thank You for day by day and with each passing moment. Father, we sang it. It's true. We love it. Your Word is so sufficient. Your power is so sufficient. Your grace is so sufficient. Father, on this day, we acknowledge Your grace, Your power, Your blessings, Your Word. We want to be diligent to approach Your Word today as we study to show ourselves approved. And Father, we thank You that we're not here claiming to have earned or deserved anything. We are here as the objects of Your grace. I thank You for the Holy Spirit that indwells each one of us to open the eyes of our understanding, to lead us in the truth. We thank You, Father, and we praise You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so last week, Easter Sunday, we spent a lot of time in verse 8 talking about Joshua and how he did not give them rest, but he could have. If Joshua had given them rest. If. But the reality is, he didn't. But had he given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. And we have what are called here counterfactuals in the text, these if statements that are not true. But if they were true, then here would be a consequence. Here would be a result. And we spent a lot of time dealing with that. In fact, I think it's kind of cool that it ended up being an Easter message because we have such a message like that related to the resurrection of Christ. If the dead are not raised, then Christ Himself is not raised. And if Christ Himself is not raised, then our Christian walk is meaningless. Our, our salvation is actually not even true. We're still dead in our sins if Christ is not raised. And so these, these concepts, these principles, I think, are, are vital for us in our New Testament study. And, and one such counterfactual is right here. If Joshua had given them rest. And that statement is so marvelous because if all we have is an Old Testament, we're reading through Joshua, Judges, Ruth, we're going through the conquest, it kind of seems like he gave them rest. It kind of seems like they had victories, mostly they had a couple of defeats, but a lot of victories, and then they divided up the land And then we have verses that says that they rested from their labors. They rested from their enemies. They rested. And so Joshua, the the text of Joshua says that they rested. 
But the, talk, the text of Hebrews says that, they, that Joshua did not give them the rest, the faith rest, that Hebrews is teaching us about here. And so uh, we want to be clear on this. We can rest so far as we're concerned and think we're resting. But if we're not resting as God has designed it, then we're not resting in His plan. We're not resting in His will. And that becomes uh, an important consideration as well. Remember, even though they rested, they stopped their battles, they, they lived in these cities, they thought, hey, everything's great now. They still had idols with them. They still had idols that they had carried with them from Egypt. And Joshua has to tell them, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, but you guys still have all these idols with you. What are you going to do? Are you going to serve idols? Are you going to serve God? And so he left it with them, and I think it's clear on the basis of those idols being present, and it's even more clear on the basis of this statement here in verse 8, that although they rested militarily, they rested politically, they rested economically, they did not have the faith rest life that they were designed to have. Because if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. And yet he did. David wrote Psalm 95 some 400 years later, and we have day after day, uh, or today if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So, This is what we're looking at here. Now, when we get to verse 9, we see, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Since Moses didn't give it to them, since Joshua didn't give it to them, David speaks about it, but even David didn't give it to them. Jesus came and Jesus didn't give it to them because they rejected the Christ and crucified the Christ. And so it remains as a promise. It remains as a future promise. The earthly people of God have a remaining promised rest. It's still remaining. It's still remaining. It's still remaining. And I love the fact that the kingdom was offered to them again and again and again. That Moses, the kingdom was offered to them as Moses led them out of Egypt, and yet they did not enter into rest. Joshua led them into the land, but they still did not enter into rest. David says, today do not harden your voice. They still did not enter into rest. And so each opportunity where the kingdom was truly offered, it was rejected, rejected, rejected. And ultimately then, when Jesus came, John the Baptist said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, therefore, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they crucified the Christ. And so each time there was a rejection, though, what do we see? Does God ever scrap his plan? Does God ever say, okay, well, to heck with you guys then, I'm going to move on? No. But it does require a delay. It requires a wait. And Jesus said, from now on, you will not see me again until Israel has to say what? Blessed is, is they who come in the name of the Lord. So there must be a future repentance for Israel, and then Jesus can come back. And so there remains a promised rest. Israel's coming kingdom will feature a physical rest in their physical land, but it must be volitionally accepted. He will come back when they are able to make the Psalm 118 application, when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They will have to have a spiritual repentance before they can have a physical kingdom. And so it remains. It remains an application. It is still pending. It is still pending. When God makes promises, we we should understand those promises as either fulfilled or yet to be fulfilled. I don't like to do the thing of fulfilled versus unfulfilled. Because it's, it's unfulfilled, almost conveys the idea that, well, God couldn't get it done. 
that he, these are the ones he got done, these are the ones he couldn't get done, so these are the ones that are fulfilled, these are the ones that are unfulfilled. Wait a minute. If it's unfulfilled, that means it's still pending. It will be fulfilled someday. He cannot ever change his mind or stop or say, well, okay, I promised that, but eh, you guys blew it, so let me switch around now and uh, let me take all of your promises now and assign them to the church instead of to you. What kind of a faithless God would that be? Can you imagine? Be like a, you know, standing at the altar making wedding vows and then deciding, you know what? I'm going to transfer these vows to this other woman over here. And I'm still faithful. No, you're not. You made your vows to this woman. That's who your promises must be fulfilled to. And so there remains a coming promise of rest. Now, that's for the earthly people of God. What about the heavenly people of God? That's us. We are the heavenly people of God. You understand that? We're not the earthly people. We don't have a land grant. We're not operating on this earth on the basis of our earthly heritage. In other words, who our parents are and what tribe we're a part of and where we, you know, what land grant we might have blessing in or any of that. Ours is a priesthood that's not based upon earthly requirements, but upon the power of an indestructible life. And that's, uh, that's a glory. That is an absolute glory. And so the heavenly people of God, we too have a promised rest. And it's all throughout, it's throughout Scripture. For the church, actually, uh, Jesus speaks of this, and then we have the daily fulfillment of this. I think when we take Matthew 11 and we blend it with Hebrews 4, uh, that picture becomes clear. So let's look at these. Titus 2 and verse 14. Let's take a look at these. Titus. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Chapter 2, and let me back up. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. It's a universal gospel. The offer is made to everybody. Not everyone accepts it, but the offer is made to everybody. Bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of uh, the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So there we have it. We are a people of God. We are His people. We are His redeemed people. We are a people that He died for to redeem us, to bring us to Himself. We are a people of God. But does that mean that we are Israel all of a sudden? Does that mean that because we're the people of God that it's the same thing as Israel is the people of God? No. We want to be clear. There's an earthly people in terms of Israel. And there's a heavenly people in terms of the church. Some people make that assumption and it's a, it's a leap of logic. It's bad logic. It's a fallacy. To say, well, Israel was the people of God. The the church is a people of God. So that therefore, right, the church must be Israel. Mm -mm. Non sequitur, does not follow. Okay? Be like saying, Scott Grubb is a man. Pastor Bob is a man. Therefore, Scott Grubb is Pastor Bob. How does that work? Okay, figure that one out. Yes, Israel is the people of God from the Old Testament, from the perspective of an earthly people in the midst of other earthly nations. They're surrounded by Gentiles. 
we are not an earthly people. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are neither Jew nor Gentile. We are neither male nor female. We are a heavenly people for God's own possession. Likewise, 1 Peter 2.10 addresses this. Back up here, verse 9. You are a chosen race. Isn't that beautiful? You know, when you're in Adam, there's all kinds of races and uh, usually they all have anger and hatred and prejudice and problems. But uh, guess what? In Christ, we get to be a chosen race. How about that? We don't get to choose our earthly race, do we? (laughs) And we don't get to choose our earthly sex either. People are trying that these days. (laughs) But we are what we are on the basis of our birth. Same thing with our new birth when we're born again in Christ. And this time now, the choice is God's choice. And He's chosen us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and beloved. And here we are, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. That's different. Israel was not a priesthood. Israel had a priesthood. The church is a priesthood. That's a big difference. We are a royal priesthood. And in Israel, even if you think that, well, they were all, shouldn't they all have been a priest nation? They weren't a royal priesthood because Judah was the royal tribe and Levi was the priestly tribe. The idea of blending those two for Israel doesn't make any sense. But for the church, it makes perfect sense. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Israel was a holy nation. We are a holy nation. But again, it's a flaw in logic to try to equate the two and conflate them. The purpose is so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so how does a people group that never existed before, how does it all of a sudden get created all of a sudden? Well, this is a mystery of the church, is it not? Jesus said, I will build my church. And this is something that had never existed before, and now it's created new, the new creation that we have in Christ. So we are the people of God. We are this heavenly people of God. And we too have a promised rest. And Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'm going to give you rest. You guys have read your Bible before. You know where I'm going before I even get there. Matthew 11. Keep in mind, though, something to pay attention to here. It it is interesting um, because it it is the Gospels. It is Jesus speaking in the Gospels. It is before the day of Pentecost. It's not church age. All right, and so we want to we want to view this passage with some consideration. Is he speaking to Israel? Is he speaking to the church? How is he speaking to the church? If the church isn't here yet, if the church is still yet future, how is he speaking to Israel? If Israel is rejecting him as the Messiah, I think that's significant. And so he talks about this with this, these messages of woe to these unrepentant cities. And uh, talking about what happens when someone who has the word preached to them doesn't respond by faith. And uh, it's kind of a sad message for Bethsaida. It's a sad message for Chorazin and Capernaum. Notice though, Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for in this way was well-pleasing in your sight. 
And this becomes significant. This starts talking now about, remember, we've discussed God deals with people corporately. He also deals with people individually. And when Israel as a nation is rejected corporately, there is still an opportunity for them individually. An individual Jewish person can still respond to the gospel, get saved, receive eternal life. And so we see this here. He talks about the individual acceptance of the gospel. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And so in a context here where Israel as a nation is rejecting Christ, Israel corporately is rejecting the promised rest, rejecting the kingdom, rejecting rest, he still has a grace message that allows individuals to respond by faith. Individuals can receive eternal life. Individuals can not only get saved, but then begin a walk of faith with their Savior. And so we see it here. Coming to the Father through the Son. And then verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so we have an invitation that's made to those that come. So viewing verse 27 then as a salvation reference, viewing verse 28 then as an experience, walk. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. An unbeliever doesn't learn from God, but someone who is saved, walking with the Lord, yoked with Jesus Christ, can learn. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Well, yoke sounds painful. <laughs> yoke sounds like work. Is it, can I learn a different way besides that yoke method? No. That yoke method is what we're called to do. And, and really, why are you complaining so much? You know, the yoke has the two holes in it, right? For one for each ox. And so the two oxen stick their, hole, their, their heads through those holes and you're, they're yoked together. Okay. Well, does it make a difference to you if you know that Jesus is the other ox? that kind of help you know so yeah we're walking i don't like the path he's taking me on but if you know what am i what am i going to do break the yoke and walk off my way over here you know i'd much rather stay stuck to jesus i want to you know and and that's okay though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i fear no evil because i'm i'm yoked to jesus i'm walking there it's a beautiful thing so here is a promised rest, and it's a, re- it's a rest that is the faith rest that Moses didn't give him, Joshua didn't give him, David didn't give him. Here's Jesus offering it, they're going to crucify him. But it's a faith rest, and it's available. Now, how do I know that we can apply this in the body of Christ? Well, because exactly that, we are the body of Christ. What body is there that's better to fulfill a passage that speaks of being yoked? What other passages speak of being yoked? How about marriage passages? How about other passages that speak about don't be unequally yoked? How about that? And so we teach in a variety of applications. We tell young people, you know, why are you dating an unbeliever? You can't marry an unbeliever. Why are you going to be unequally yoked? That's an application. We have other applications to be made, such as here. A believer faith rests walking with Jesus. This is our blessing because He's the head, we're the body. He's the, he's the groom, we're the bride. And so we are yoked with Jesus now. 
and being yoked with Jesus, what do we have available for us? The faith rest life. The faith rest life is our provision. And so clearly I can take Matthew 11 all day, every day, and apply this day after day as long as it's called a day. And I can say, okay, it was primarily given as an Israel text, but now that the mystery of the church has unfolded, we have direct application as the body of Christ because we are yoked to Jesus as his bride. So, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All right, and I hope you saw what we did with that. If you have any questions, we can resolve those. Wednesday night we do the Q&A. You know, there's, it's, there's a method, there's a mechanism, there's a reason why. We can take passages for Israel and apply them in the church. There's a reason why also we reject passages from Israel and we don't bring them into the church. So why do we take certain passages and make them church applicable? And why do we not take other passages and make them church inapplicable? What's the criteria for that? We just flipping coins? <laughs> Throwing darts at the dartboard? Is it just a matter of what we like, what we don't like? Are we, are we uh, just totally arbitrary about it? Okay, This becomes significant, by the way. We start talking with folks and, and, uh, and they're very angry at us because of certain things. And they start telling us, you know, for example, the, the sexual laws from Leviticus and whatever. And then they'll immediately say, well, do you eat pork? Those are all thrown away. We don't live Leviticus anymore. And they think somehow that's their, their, their winning argument uh, that allows them to, to fornicate, fornicate all day long. Okay? Because I eat pork, they can fornicate. That's, that's the logic. Okay? So we want to know what is our criteria. On what basis do we adapt Old Testament passages to the church? And, what pa- and so, I mean, nobody brought a goat with them today, right? Thank you. We're not going to butcher an animal in here. We don't have a real altar anyway, and it just gets the carpet messy. And the doctrine of animal sacrifices is fulfilled by the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The doctrine makes it clear. So we have legitimate criteria by which dietary restrictions are now gone. Jesus said, eat it. Had to tell Peter three times because Peter's a knucklehead. Eat it, eat it, eat it. Anyway, we have the promised rest. And we look at Hebrews 4, and we have day after day as long as it's called today. And we have an in the meantime emphasis here in Hebrews 4. Now, this is a letter that's written to the Hebrews, but it's written to the Hebrews that have crucified the Christ. It's written in the church age as part of the Greek canon, not the Hebrew canon. It is primarily for church age application. It will have an application, I think, powerfully so after the rapture. I think the book of Hebrews is going to take center stage for the 144,000, for the Jewish remnant in the tribulation. They're going to be, it's going to become a, a focal point for them as they endure to the end of the tribulation uh, so as to be saved. But when we look at this daily reference here, we who have believed enter that rest. We enter that rest. Us, you, me, we right? We enter that rest today. 
That's, that's totally different from Israel waiting to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and see Jesus come in Armageddon and enter into the millennial kingdom. See what I'm talking about? It's a present application for the church. The heavenly people of God have a promised rest and we have it now, right now. We who believe enter that rest. That's verse 3. That's present time. That's right here, right now. Verse 6. Therefore it remains for some to enter it. That's right here, right now. Verse 10. The one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. That's the verse that actually gives you the how-to. How do I enter that rest? I want to do it. I want to do it today. I want to do it all day. All right, pastor, you convinced me I can do this today. How do I do it? That's verse 10. We're almost there. All right. Present tense today. Verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. It takes work. It doesn't happen automatically. You can't be a spiritual slug and just get there. Be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall following the same example of disobedience. You want to die in your spiritual wilderness? Okay. And as we've said over and over again, it has nothing to do with losing your salvation. It has to do with a redeemed people that fails to enter into rest. So the earthly people of God have a remaining promised rest. They will, there's a millennium coming. But the heavenly people of God have a promised rest and we can have it today. Right here, right now. It's not something we're waiting to go to heaven when we die. We don't get it when we go to heaven. We have it right here, right now. All right. I want to be clear on that. Verse 10. Here's the how. For, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For, by way of explanation, and uh, here we go. The one who has entered his rest. What did you do to get you there? How did you get there? Okay, you ever walk into a room and forget why you walked in? (laughs) Happens more and more the older some people get. Okay? <laughs> you walk into a room and you're like, uh, the one who has entered his rest. Now, how did I get here? Has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. This is the mechanism. This is the how-to. This is the explanation. And thank God... He brings us to Ephesians to uh, Hebrews 4:10 the same Sunday he brings us to Philippians 2:12 and 13 it is God who's at work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure God is doing the work So the one who has entered his rest so that was last hour by the way if you're not here at the 9:30 hour uh, our 9:30 hour is the is the Philippians series uh, that we continue on Wednesday nights um, and in this morning we're in Philippians 2.13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work of His good pleasure. God does the work. We need to start resting from our works as God did from His. How do we do that? How do I rest from my works? Well, how did God rest from His works? How do I rest from my works? How do I stop trying to work so hard to make this all happen? And start watching him do it, walking by faith and giving him the glory. Well, let's spell it out. 
Genesis 2. Remember this? You know, God rested from His work as a sanctification and a blessing of the Sabbath day. Let's keep this in mind. It was not a vacation. It was a day of sanctification and blessing. It was a day of worship. It's a day of worship. When you go on vacation, do you go to church? God rested from His work. Let's let's look at Genesis 2. God rested from His work. By the way, you don't have to go to church when you're on vacation. We're not legalists, okay? You can, great, you know, visit other places, see what they're doing. But, you know, if you got expensive tickets to Disneyland or if you got, you know, Harry Potter World, those are pricey tickets. <laughs> go ride the roller coasters. God, uh, you know, don't have to be. Okay, anyway, we live in the church age. We live in the age of grace. I recommend the Double Dragon. That's the <laughs> best roller coaster. Dragon Challenge, whatever it's called. Genesis 2. God did not take a vacation, but God rested. God set apart a day for spiritual priorities. So we can read about it in chapter 1. There's six days, all the details there. Um, No mention of the woman. Uh, It's debated, fierce arguments. Was Eve around on this first day seven? When was Eve made? How many days passed before Eve came along? Some people insist that she was also created on day six. I, I can't see that, but in any event. So you have six days in chapter one. And then the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. And by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. So if we're going to rest from our works in the same way that God rested from his works, this verse tells us how to do it. How to do it. So you kick off your shoes and you pop a cold one. You prop your feet up and put on a ball game. How do you rest from your works? So by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. So here's the key. Here's, here's how God did it. Here's how we do it. How do we bless and sanctify our rest? He blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all the work which God had created and made, Barah and Asah. That's a significant tandem there. God wants us to pay attention to the Barahs and the Asahs throughout chapter 1. Emphasizes them there in 2-3. All right. What did he do? He stopped his ongoing work. And keep in mind, it is ongoing. He rested on day 7. What did he do on day 8? That's right. Yeah, we're not deists. We don't think that God created everything and he's been retired ever since. That he, he like the, the watchmaker, that he wound up the universe and then disappeared, left us to our own devices. That's a pathetic, deistic, um, really atheistic view. He went back to work on day eight. 
Walking with Adam, teaching Adam. Fellowshipping. The pattern is the seventh day is the day of blessing and sanctification. Because in it he rested from all the work which he had created and made. All right, so he stopped his ongoing work to acknowledge the glory of what he had accomplished. And I think this is significant because this is the weekly application of what he did at the end of each individual day. You look at the end of each individual day, he stopped and reflected, but he didn't take a full day to stop and reflect. He just took the end of the day to reflect, and then he had more work to do the next day. So what does he do in verse 4? He sees that it's good. Now we've got to back up into chapter 1. Okay? We keep backing up. How far can we keep backing up? This is kind of the limit of how far back we can back up. Yeah, Genesis 1. Um, So God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So God looks at what he does. God appreciates what he does. God observes what he does. God's impressed with himself. You realize that? How can he not be? He's perfect. Everything he does is perfect. And this is the pattern. If we're going to rest as God rested, we've got to follow this pattern. I don't think, many of us, I don't think are impressed enough with God in order to rest properly. Most of us are disappointed in God, so we don't rest properly. And uh, we're grumbling about the testing we're going through right now. We're very unimpressed with how God is bailing us out of this test. We're very hopeless with this test. And so we're going to lose heart instead of resting because we're not impressed with who God is or what God's doing. We don't look at a day of testing and go, wow, that was very good. Thank you, God. We look at a day of testing and say, I hate that. I shouldn't have to go through that. That's wrong. So I'm not looking at the separation of light and darkness and saying that's a good thing. I'm looking at something and saying, I would have done it better. I don't like what you're doing with this. And so because we're not satisfied with we're not impressed with what God's impressed with. We don't enter into rest in the way that He entered into rest. And we will never enter into faith rest until we get impressed with God. Verse 10, God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters He called seas and God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Now there's a lot of things we look at and we're not saying that everything is good but everything works together for good. And so when we stop and reflect we either find the present goodness or we claim the promise that it's going to work together for good and we thank Him for what He's doing. And so each step of the way here, notice there's evening and morning. Evening and morning, one day. Evening and morning, a second day. Evening and morning, a third day. Evening and morning, a fourth day. And so He has these at the end of the day moments, evening and morning, evening and morning, And he looks back and he reflects on this day. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day the appreciation to be impressed with what God's impressed with so that we can rest and say, thank you, Father. And then we have the Sabbath blessing, sanctified and blessed. And so uh, verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, trees bearing fruit with seed in them. After their kind, God saw that it was good. So we have observations that are being made. Each one of these verses, 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, 31, all those verses, God is looking at something. 
And what's he looking at? Something he just did. (laughs) Why does he have to look at it? Didn't he just do it? See, that's the key. This then forms the motivation, it forms the perspective in which God himself rested from all his works. This is the basis for which he blesses it and sanctifies it. It's going to be the basis for which we bless and sanctify our Sabbath rest. It's going to be the basis for which we enter into our Sabbath rest. We're going to quit doing all that work ourselves. And we're going to look at what he just finished doing. And we're going to look at and we're going to reflect upon how good he is in what he does. And when we bless it and sanctify it, recognizing that it's not us, it's him, we've entered into that rest. So verse uh, 18, to govern the day and the night, to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. Verse 21, God saw that it was good, created this great sea monsters. Those are the tanin, the dragons, and every living creature that moves with the waters swarmed after their kind, every winged bird after its kind, God saw that it was good. God blessed them and saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters and the seas, let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening and morning of fifth day. Verse 25, creeps on the ground. Everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, God saw that it was good. Finally, verse 31. Here, This closes the chapter now. God saw all that he had made. Behold, it was very good. It intensifies the goodness. Very good. And there was evening and there was morning, a sixth day. So six days of reflecting. At the end of each day, he looked back and reflected. Now for day seven, day seven is different. Day seven is, there's no, work, there's no new work to do, but there's those previous six days to look back and to have a blessed and sanctified period of time to acknowledge the glory of what God is doing. So, this is what we do. This is what we do. When we enter into faith rest today, we stop our ongoing work to acknowledge the glory of God for what He has accomplished. See, the only way to enter into rest is to do as He did, to rest from our works as He rested from His. And that means we bless, we sanctify, We reflect, we give Him the glory for what's good. We give Him the glory for what's good. When we enter into faith rest today, we stop our ongoing work. As we saw last hour, God's the one doing the work anyway. 1 Corinthians 12, 6. We stop our ongoing work to acknowledge the glory of God for what He has accomplished. See, some of us are so busy pursuing ministry, we never stop to enter into rest. We're using our gifts, we're pursuing our ministries, but then we're frustrated because we don't see the effects, and we don't see the Father doesn't seem to be doing the effects, because we're not letting Him. And we're not stopping and acknowledging and reflecting on what He's doing. 1 Corinthians 12, 6. Am I really going to teach this twice in the same day? 
teach it a third time if you want. Come back tonight, I'll teach it a fourth time. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, there's a trinity there. There's the Holy Spirit, there's Jesus Christ, there's the Father. There's spiritual gifts, there's ministries, and there's effects or workings. Who's doing the work? God's doing the work. Let Him. Rest from your work as He rested from His. Reflect upon what God is doing. It's to God be the glory, great things He has done, right? (laughs) Could I rewrite that song, to Bob be the glory, great things Bob has done? It'd be a pretty pathetic song. I don't think you would join me in that. Might get a chorus of Bob's, but no one else would join in that song. 1 Corinthians 12, 4, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. God the Holy Spirit gives me my gift, gives you your gift. All of our gifts are empowered by God the Holy Spirit. There are a variety of ministries in the same Lord. My ministry, your ministry, every ministry we have, you're walking with Jesus, you're yoked to Jesus Christ, and He's leading you in ministry. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons, who works all gifts and ministries works all in all. So we have the Spirit, we have the Son, we have the Father. A full trinity here. Do you have the full trinity working in your Christian walk? It's a powerful thing. But if you're trying to do it all yourself, then you're never going to enter into rest as He entered into His rest. Because the only way to do it is to rest from your works. Let Him do it. 1 Corinthians 15.10 I don't plan on ever having a tombstone because I believe we're the rapture generation. And uh, since we're all going to get raptured, then there's no funerals, there's no bodies, there's no burial. But if the rapture is delayed and I do physically die some point, then I will have a tombstone or something, I guess. Uh, someone after have, have to work, worry about those details. But if I'm allowed to write my own tombstone it would be this verse by the grace of god i am what i am and his grace toward me did not prove vain but i labored even more than all of them does that seem like a contradiction i thought i was supposed to stop all my work let him do it here paul says i labored all the more than all of them but notice yet not i but the grace of God with me. See, letting God do the work doesn't mean you become a spiritual slug and you just sit there doing nothing. Okay? Letting God do the work means you're fully engaged, pursuing your ministry, employing your gift, allowing Him to work in and through you for His good pleasure. Let Him do it. Like a passive imperative, let Him do it. Let Him do it. And so not I but the grace of God with me. It's all grace. Philippians 2.13. You know, right after it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling in verse 12, you think, wow, that's a lot of pressure. I got to work out my own salvation? No wonder there's fear and trembling, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And all of a sudden you're just, wow, that's a, that's a big load. That's 
that's a lot of pressure. I don't think I can measure up to that. Well, relax. Because verse 13 follows, it says, For it is God who is the one at work in you to will and to work of His good pleasure. What's exhausting is doing it all yourself. What's exhausting is, uh, you know, breaking that yoke and walking off and being your own thing, doing your own path, right? In that kind of, I mean, that's our carnality. That's what we want to do. We're going to be the, the, the um, Frank Sinatra of I did it my way or whatever, right? Just go off and do it and say, yep, I got to be me. <laughs> no, you're him. You're in him. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. The life that you now live, you live by faith. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And so let him do that work. Let him do that work. Hebrews 2.10 so chapter 2, I don't remember chapter 2. Did we teach chapter 2? Yeah. It was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. And we realize, you know what? God does everything he does, and he does it perfectly including suffering. Why am I grumbling about the sufferings? Jesus needed it and perfected him. And that took him where he needed to be. I need my suffering. That perfects me. That takes me where I need to be. So quit grumbling about what he's doing. I know it's convicting. That verse says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And that's, that's a tough verse. I'm the biggest grumbler in this church. I'm the biggest grumbler in any five churches you can point out to me. And I've got to stop. Scripture says quit doing that. So we have Hebrews 2.10. And, um, you know, what a blessing. How about 13.21, Hebrews 13.21. When will we be in chapter 13? How long is this study going to take? At some point, we're going to get to chapter 13. There's a benediction here starting in verse 20. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will. What a promise. Working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. You see all the complaints that this just removes, all the grumbling, all the disputing, all the... It ends, it's gone. We have no legitimate complaint to make. Equip you in every good thing. God does that. It's kind of a lame excuse to say, well, I would have obeyed, but I just didn't have what I needed. Right? What a lame excuse. You know, it's like a child, a teenager, an employee, somebody, a student. Well, you know, I wanted to do this, I just didn't have... Didn't have the right tools, didn't have the right equipment, didn't have the right blah, 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 blah. There's always a reason. And, and that kind of also insults who? You didn't give me what I needed to get it done. Okay? I would have done it, but you gave me, like Adam's saying, it was the woman you gave me, Lord. Why'd you give me such a loser? You should, you should give me a better woman. Right? 
And we seem to always blame, well, I don't have the right equipment. This verse says He equips you. He gives you what you need in every good thing to do His will. So don't blame the equipment. Every good gift bestowed, every perfect thing comes down from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Really, you're going to blame Him for not giving you what you needed to obey Him? He told you to obey Him and He gave you everything you needed. And working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. He was doing the work. Why did we stop Him? Why did we not let Him do the work? Why did we hinder what it was that He was doing? Why did we reject that and go our own way and do our own thing? Working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so we have the, uh, the expectation here. We can't blame it. We can't blame Him for not giving us the equipment. We can't blame Him for not working in us. All we can do is blame ourselves. We went carnal. We grieved the Holy Spirit, quenched the Holy Spirit, resisted the Holy Spirit. We took off the armor. We put on the old man. We were supposed to put on Christ. Instead, we tossed Him aside and we put on that old garment again. That old, ratty, nasty thing that was supposed to be nailed to the cross. And we took it off the cross and put it back on. And said, ooh, I want to wear this again. I love this. Well, we all have it. We all have that old, ratty, nasty shirt with holes, with stains, with smells, and it's the best thing in the world. And we love it. We wear it. Just not in public, usually. Around the house, it's okay, isn't it? But we put on the old man. Why? We were told not to. We were told to cast him aside and put on the new man, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ to make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lusts. So this is the how. When God rested from his work, it was a sanctification and a blessing. When we rest from our work, it's as he rested from his. It should be a sanctification and a blessing. How do I rest from my work? I stop, I reflect, I bless. Am I blessing myself? I'm blessing God. I sanctify. Do I sanctify myself? I'm sanctifying a moment. I'm sanctifying a day. I'm sanctifying the time that I'm stopping and resting from my work. Because keep in mind, it's not just one day a week. We get to do this every day. God did one day a week, but our blessing is day after day as long as it's called today. And so we stop, we, we bless, we reflect, we sanctify. We acknowledge God and what God's doing. Say, thank you, Father. Thank you for this test. Thank you for this work assignment. Thank you for this conflict. Thank you for this, all these things I don't like. Instead of complaining, I'm lamenting. But I'm blessing. I'm sanctifying. That's the difference between a grumbling and a lamenting right? Because you're prayerful with it. You're in agreement with Him on it. You're asking Him to glorify His Son in this test. Asking Him to teach me what I need to learn in this test. Asking Him to bring this test to its victorious conclusion. Because that's when it's going to go away. He's not going to keep it going until while there's lessons still to be learned, while there's growth still to be attained to. So learn the lesson. 
And then you can move on to the next one, which is worse than this one. So don't complain about this one so much. Bless it, sanctify it, reflect upon it, give Him the glory for what He's doing. Say, thank you, Father. Boy, this is really doing a lot. This is really doing a lot. Say, thank you, Father. Then verse 11, therefore, let us be diligent. Again, you're going to notice some things here. It's exclusive. It's narrow. It's uh, discriminatory. God's rest discriminates against those who don't enter into it. Notice there's some to enter into it, but it's got to be by faith. Let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall. Some do, many fall. I think it's a minority. Every pattern we have in Scripture is a minority. Let us be diligent to enter that rest. Right there, what does that tell you? It takes work. It takes effort. Does everybody put in the same amount of effort? Does anybody put in the same amount of work? Does everybody put in any kind of work? Let's face it. Much of Christendom has no interest in working. But it requires diligence. What is diligence? Diligence is a hard-working endeavor. It's kind of a oxymoron, don't you think? You better work hard to enter into rest. Okay? It's like, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. That's also a Bible verse. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. God, God, God is so fun. He, he, he throws us with these things that on the surface they appear to be contradictory. They appear to be oxymoronic. He dwells in unapproachable light, but He commands us to approach Him. He ha- uh, The unfathomable riches in Christ, but we fathom them. There's so many of these, uh, I call them church-age paradoxes. They're, they're, they're these conundrums that if you didn't have divine viewpoint, you'd be left spinning your head saying, well, that didn't make any sense. How, uh, how was he being rich became poor that we might make many rich? How does that happen? And so working hard at a rest, diligence is a hard-working endeavor. And the fact is that it becomes volitionally incumbent upon us to be diligent. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You're here this morning because you're diligent. You're paying attention because you're diligent. There's more uh, diligence. I'm going to run out of time, but I guess... Well, I'll just keep going until Molly comes back. How about that? (laughs) Um, We have a closing hymn, and we're going to do that. But um, let's do... uh, Let's look at chapter 6 and verse 11. Let's see some diligence. Otherwise, we'll we'll save the rest of this slide for next week. Um, Diligence. Hebrews 6, 9 says, Beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. How sad that Christians are content to be saved. I'm happy to be saved, but I'm not content. There's more to, to... the plan of God than just being saved. 
is not, well, believe in Christ and then sit around and wait to die someday. There's work to be done in the meantime. There's fruit to be uh, born. There's treasure to be laid up. There's victory to achieve. Things that accompany salvation. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. You know that diligence does not have an expiration date. Diligence is expected today, tomorrow, the next day, every day of grace that God gives you. You know any Christians that are retired? Retired Christians, I mean. I'm talking about, well, been there, done that. Haven't I done enough? Come on, I've done enough. Somebody else can teach Sunday school. I've taught Sunday school for years. Somebody else can take a turn. I'm done. Somebody else can take a turn. I'm done. Really? You plan on bearing no more fruit from now until you're face-to-face with the Lord. That's a lot of wasted years. What are you doing today? Forget what lies behind and what are you doing today? Diligence never stops. If it does stop, you can't call it diligence anymore, can you? (laughs) You're not going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. What are you going to hear? You wicked, lazy slave. And I don't want anyone in this flock to, to hear that. It'll break your heart and break my heart. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant for every sheep that I'm accountable for. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the power of your word. And Father, I pray that you would open our eyes. Thank you for teaching us uh, Philippians 2 and Hebrews 4, both on the same day. Father, show us how to rest from our work as you rested from yours. Show us how to rest from our work and observe you in your work. Father, show us how these things come together practically, experientially, today, that we might enter into rest day after day as long as it's called today. We want to hear his voice. We want to walk with him in faith. Thank you, Father, for teaching us these things. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.